Welcome to LifeWords Day by Day. Howard Hendricks once said that we are all faced with a series of great opportunities brilliantly disguised as unsolvable problems. We love to hear those stories of resolve and perseverance and overcoming the odds. We just don't necessarily like to live them. So the question for us becomes, as Christians, what are we supposed to do with those situations, those discouragements that ebb and flow in our lives? How are we supposed to view them and handle them? As we've studied Acts 14, we've seen that Paul and Barnabas, as they returned from their first missionary trip, they said that all that had happened to them, the hard times and the good times, were all part of God's grace and had served to open up a door of faith to the Gentiles. And we've identified one thing we need in our lives that will help us see and treat discouragements like open doors. We need a faithful partner in the ministry who encourages us and who equips us. Is there anything else that we need? Well, let's look at our text together, paying special attention to verse 26. Acts chapter 14, verses 24 through 26. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace for the work that they had fulfilled. The church at Antioch, before Barnabas and Paul left on this trip, commended them to the grace of God. They had been turned over to the grace of God, just like when a father gives away his daughter to her husband. So first of all, let's gain a good definition of God's grace. God's grace pervades every participle of the created world. Earlier in Acts chapter 14, Paul tells the people at Lystra that they have experienced God's common grace because he has given the rain and fruitful seasons. So everyone enjoys the grace of God, whether they know it or not. We do. He created everything, and we ruined everything, yet He allows us to continue to live on this earth, reaping benefits from it. Add to that that God has graced us with His continual presence and a witness to Himself, and He has given us His Son to show us the immensity of His grace and love towards us. He didn't have to. He didn't owe us anything, yet He gives us life and breath and provision. And he could do all that and then wipe us off the face of the earth and he would be completely just and righteous in doing that. If he did that, it would not be a contradiction in his character one bit. But he doesn't. Instead, he makes the promise that he will defeat that which causes us death, which is sin. He sends his son into the world at no cost to us and every cost to himself. He offers up his son as a sacrifice for sinful man so that we would believe that we are sinners deserving of death and separation. Yet we believe and trust that Jesus' death is the punishment of our sin, and His resurrection is the guarantee that God accepted the payment on my behalf. Then we would be saved, given a new type of life, and have the promise of eternity with God. That is grace. And here's something else, something we don't often consider. Everything after that in a believer's life is filtered into our life by the gracious hand of God for His glory and our good. Nothing makes it through the filter of God's grace that He doesn't appoint, permit, or ordain for His glory or our good. All of it, the good, the bad, the ugly, it's working in our lives for His glory and our good. So here's the question. What am I supposed to do about those things that are distasteful, discouraging, 
that hurt or wound me? How am I to understand what God is doing during those times? Well, C.S. Lewis once said that God whispers to us in our pleasures, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So there is a place and there is a purpose and there is a perspective of suffering we need to have heading in. To do so, we're going to start with a classic passage in the book of James. Look at what it says in James chapter 1, verse 2. The first thing he says is, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Notice, first of all, what he did not say in verse 2. He didn't say, count it all joy, my brothers, if you meet various trials. What does he say? He says when. The idea of trials in a Christian's life, the idea of trials in anybody's life, is they are a required course in God's economy. There's no exemption that you can kind of clep out of this somehow and miss out on trials in your life. None of us have that. We're all going to walk through trials. It's a part and parcel of life. James shows us that none of us can escape a life of testing. Notice also the word various there. It's a word that means plentiful, meaning trials won't just be one and done. But James' main point here is that when you encounter the abundance of trials, when they find you, and they will, what is the perspective that you are to have? Not as the rest of the world who doesn't know God, but as a Christian. What's the perception that you're to have in the midst of these trials? He says there in verse 2 that we are to consider all of it joy. Well, what in the world does that mean? Who would say that? What kind of person would say, hey, bro, I know the wheels are falling off right now. I know that life is tragic for you, but this is joyous. This is the sweetest time of your life. Who comes in and goes, hey, guess what, guys? I've got prostate cancer. Isn't that awesome? Let's just receive this with joy. Is anybody going to say that? Nobody says that. At first, that exhortation sounds really foolish until we come to understand exactly what James was getting at. Notice the imperative in verse 2. It doesn't say act joyous in the moment that you encounter trials, but rather count it as joy. Some translations say consider it as joy. What James is not doing is dismissing the emotion of trials. He's not telling you when trials come, you just need to put a smile on your face. He's not telling you that. He's not dismissing the emotion. He's not wiping away grief and pain. Rather, this is a mathematical term that is applied towards the believer that we are to have a different perspective than the rest of the unbelieving world. We need to count what is happening to us through a completely different lens. It means that you know that you know you are protected by God's gracious filter and that nothing comes into your life without His approval. So He must be up to something for His glory and my good. That perspective does not mean you aren't supposed to grieve or mourn or hurt. It does mean that we have to look at things from an ultimate vantage point instead of a temporary one, though. Throughout Acts chapters 13 and 14, Paul and Barnabas walked into many trials. But at the end of the day, they said God was up to something for His glory. I pray that your perspective of God's grace will lead you to say the same thing. When you pray today, pray for Stephen, Candace, Eliana, and Miles Schrader in Papua New Guinea. And also pray for the Kekchi broadcast in the target area of Guatemala.